So good evening, listeners. Uh, good morning, wherever you are joining us from uh, today. We are back with our favorite team of uh, cutting edge evaluators uh, from the EES evaluation, cut, evaluate, evaluation team. Today in the studio with us, uh, we have the podcast team along with myself, Val Gandhi. We have uh, Tom Ling, uh, Mariana, Elena, and Lauren. Our podcast guest for today is Petra Karadji who is the head of the UN Pulse Lab, uh, Jakarta. And we are very excited to have him with us today and discuss the work that uh, Pulse Lab Jakarta is doing and how it can be relevant for uh, evaluators in, in uh, using cutting edge and emerging tools. Um, briefly introducing him, Petrarca is the, as I said, is the head of the Pulse Lab Jakarta, part of the UN Global Pulse Network and Pulse Lab Jakarta was established as a big data innovation lab and is now emerging as an analytical partnership accelerator for development and humanitarian action. Petra has more than 25 years of professional experience undertaking a range of international development industry roles. These include as team leader for the Knowledge Sector Initiative, Senior Partnerships Advisor for DFAT Australia, Director of Poverty, Decentralization and Rural Development for AusAid, uh, and Director of the Eastern Indonesia Knowledge Exchange uh, Platform, also known as Bhakti. And he has been team leader for a multi-donor support uh, office of the Eastern Indonesia within the World Bank. And prior to that, as Director of Austraining Nusantara. So we have a very uh, experienced speaker uh, uh, who works in cutting edge uh, tools today with us. So Papetra, Salamat, uh, salamat datang to our podcast, and we are very happy to have you with us today. Thank you. So, uh, could you briefly tell us about the UN Global Pulse Network and specifically on Pulse Lab Jakarta and its mandate? Because as we know, PLJ. Uh, been at least viewing some of the excellent work that you do. And it's one of the few organizations that have effectively used emerging data tools, especially big data and mobile location data to support policy. So can you tell us a little bit about Pulse Lab uh, Jakarta and its mandate, please? Uh, sure, and it's interesting that you should ask this uh, because Global Pulse itself uh, has a new emerging mandate, uh, Val. Uh, the a renewed mandate for uh, Global Pulse uh, actually commencing this year is with a focus on uh, as a role with, to be a cross-pillar hub in the United Nations for experimentation and digital innovation and that it's going to be integrated into the executive office of the Secretary General for the UN so we'll be working closely with other strategic units but for Pulse Lab Jakarta uh, we are actually looking to represent this uh, Global Pulse's mandate on a regional level in Asia-Pacific. Uh, you might not actually be aware that Postlab Jakarta was established as a joint facility between the United Nations and the government of Indonesia. And uh, we've been really fortunate to receive core funding from the government of Australia uh, to um, undertake our work. Specifically at this point in time, if you're talking about um, our uh, direct mandate, we're actually trying to shift from just working on data innovations towards uh, uh, what we specify as a role in accelerating analytic partnerships for development and humanitarian action. So uh, what we recognized is that we were working too much in the solution space, uh, basically developing data innovations. And 
we are now trying to make much more of a conscious effort to work in problem spaces where we undertake qualitative analysis and human-centered approaches. And we also work in what we what's called a identity space where we undertake institutional and capacity assessments. So that rounds off uh, our approach. And uh, what we do is uh, try to identify key partners, work with them on problems that they are mandated to handle, and then look for viable digital solutions. So. Thank you, but that's quite interesting and uh, really, really exciting to hear about it. Can you give us a couple of examples uh, or from your current work uh, on some of these initiatives that you're talking about? How do you use emerging data tools? Mm. Maybe mm. some case studies, or you can point our listeners to some areas where they can check them out themselves. Yes, uh, I mean, definitely we uh, try to share everything that we're doing on our website and through uh, blogs that we publish. But just in, in, in giving you a, a, a taste of what we're doing, and I guess particularly as we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, uh, I'll start with some examples that we're currently working on related to COVID-19. Um, so one example is uh, where we're working with the West Java province in Indonesia. West Java, yes, it's a single province, but it contains a population of 50 million people. So uh, quite, a, quite, a, uh, quite a large province. And uh, we're working with them, particularly because they have an excellent team uh, called the West Java Digital Service Team under the provincial government. Um, their mandate is with sourcing, uh, sorting and analyzing data for policymakers in the province and particularly with the province facing uh, high incidences of COVID-19. So we've been working with them in combining uh, conventional data with big data sourced from social media platforms, uh, particularly Facebook, and also with mobility data uh, actually sourced from Waze, which is I think now owned by uh, Google Maps, to highlight uh, areas with high levels of vulnerability due to a combination of variables. So we're combining variables around population density, elderly population density, pre-existing sanitation conditions, accessibility to health facilities, um, and level of mobility. So people moving through certain regions, and this allows the provincial government to then uh, pinpoint uh, the most vulnerable villages across the province um, uh, uh, facing uh, the pandemic. Um, and so what we helped to create was a basic visualization combining all of this data and that's now being further developed with the provincial government, uh, which will hopefully, hopefully be used to shape policies around vaccine distribution and other control measures as well. Um, if you like, uh, just a couple of other examples, uh, for instance, we we've been working with GIZ, a German agency, and Bank traffic authority and uh, grab grab is a major regional ride hailing corporation which I'm um, pretty sure you're familiar with now um, so in this example we developed a model using grab data uh, based on their uh, hail uh, hail riding uh, riders and um, we use this data to assess uh, traffic congestion uh, included including road speed profiling and now casting the traffic flow and this uh, helped to uh, assess population exposure towards air pollution, which is caused uh, due to congestion. And so it, it helped uh, the authorities in developing uh, some of the required responses. Um, then um, another example is working with the government of Vanuatu in the Pacific. And this is uh, with just wonderful support and uh, data access support from 
Digicel in the Pacific that have been so generous um, in allowing us to access uh, anonymized data from their uh, from their system. And so we were allowed to look at uh, mobile phone data and that helped to inform on the effectiveness of the state of emergency uh, policy issued when there was a major earthquake in Vanuatu. So we were able to use this to track uh, the origin and destination points uh, for evacuees. And that helped in uh, uh, improving the process of uh, the relief response. So yeah, this is just a couple of examples of what, what we've been doing. Thank you so much, Bami. Um, I, in terms of certain practical uh, questions about uh, how to use big data, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Alena, who will uh, take it from here. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Petra, for all these pertinent examples, in particular related to COVID-19. Um, I have a different question. Uh, big data are often large and expensive to acquire. And um, in recent uh, webinars uh, series conducted by AES, uh, many participants um, ask uh, the question about how actually development professionals manage to have access to this uh, data and um, mm. how do they use it? What about uh, validity and uh, reliability of this data? So if you can expand on this, uh, it would be very nice. Thank you. Sure. So from our perspective, I think we need, you need to first look at building relationships and finding common ground uh, for collaboration with big data owners and producers, which are uh, usually private sector. Uh, our own approach uh, is where we've tried to apply what's called the shared value partnerships approach. And this approach is basically uh, looking for common interests um, and where the, the analysis that you want to undertake um, does not interfere or cause a risk to uh, commercial interests of the big data owners and producers. So um, another way in doing or accessing uh, data or utilizing big data analysis is actually not in asking for full access or um, sharing of the data, but in creating a relationship where what uh, we look for is the data insights. So what we do is provide the algorithms that the data owners themselves then run on their data and then what they do is provide us with the insights. Uh, so that's one way of being able to access um, at, 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 uh, without having to go to the full commercial costs, costings and, and, and uh, paying for uh, big data. Um, um, and I, I think it's a very good point, Alina, around uh, the validity and reliability of uh, data, uh, big data. Um, my data innovations and policy team talk also always talks about uh, data provenance. So Sri Ganesh is our uh, lead in our uh, data innovations team. Uh, he, he talks about data provenance where you basically have to build a clear understanding of the nature and the limitations of the data that uh, you're looking to access. Um, so bearing in mind that more often than not, big data is not produced and collected with development or humanitarian action in mind. So it's definitely valid, but it's valid for its original purpose. And so the critical perspective we need to put in place is whether it holds for the new purpose that we're trying to apply this data towards, and particularly if you're talking about uh, development or humanitarian action. So um, what, what we found is a good way to approach it also in, in being able to check the validity is 
Um, first is seeking complementarity to traditional or conventional data analysis. Um, so, um, and but part of this data provenance is also in trying to ensure that we know uh, what or who the data actually represents. Um, and this also usually results in a clear perspective of who or what is discluded from the particular data set that you are uh, accessing. So I hope that answers your question, uh, Irina. Uh, yes, it does. And um, uh, actually in continuation of this question, um, as evaluators, we always uh, think about triangulation and you mentioned that uh, big data has uh, its advantages and disadvantages. So if you can give maybe one concrete example of um, how uh, big data successfully uh, complemented traditional da data in evaluation. Yes, oh, uh, definitely. Um, one of our best examples here, um, also I, I think available um, on our uh, website was um, where we worked with Indonesia's National Office of Statistics. Um, so uh, every five years, the Indonesia Statistics Bureau actually um, implements an analysis of commuting patterns. Um, and it's only done every five years because of um, uh, cost and complexity, because you know you have to field a whole, um, a whole gang of enumerators and a host of other personnel to collect and validate the data. Uh, what we did is we used Twitter data uh, to do the same analysis. And we were then able to show that the results were very, very close to the official survey conducted. Um, in doing this, uh, it convinced the Statistics Bureau that uh, the approach could be used to complement the official survey. So uh, uh, not to replace, but to complement. And, um, and because uh, of the nature of the analysis, it could be undertaken at a much lower cost and also at a higher frequency to provide uh, uh, indications if there are shifts uh, since the last uh, official survey conducted. Um, and, um, and, then, um, uh, uh, and then it would be further validated uh, in time by the uh, next official survey to be conducted by the, uh, the Bureau of Statistics. Uh, what we've done is combine conventional data uh, that's collected by the National Bureau of Statistics on what's called village potential, which basically outlines uh, conditions of villages across Indonesia. Um, and we used uh, a subset of that data, conventional data, on sanitation conditions in villages. And then uh, we uh, uh, then uh, utilized that data with other uh, data on population density and uh, population movement, which was sourced from big data. So I think it's, it's uh, seeking and showing complementarity between big data and traditional data is a great way to build confidence in uh, big data analytics. Thanks, that is so interesting. And there are a plethora of great examples of how big data can be used to help uh, development professionals. I just wondered whether um, or how in your experience you can, you can overcome some of the resistance from development professionals and uh, encourage them to engage with big data scientists. Um, it may be that some of our best uh, development professionals, their, their connection with big data is uh, clicking on likes and follows. Uh, so, how do you think, from your experience, we can help bridge the development sector and data science? 
Oh, okay. Uh, in bridging these uh, between data scientists and uh, development sector, I think uh, from the development side, we really need to also have our own data science capacity uh, that comes with a with the development praxis in a sense. So uh, it, we we need to be able to first communicate effectively, not just at a policy level or, or around ideals, but also at a technical level. And I guess that's um, where we often run into issues because uh, we're speaking different languages, uh, Tom. Um, what we've done is uh, first look at overall data ecosystem, which is relevant to the particular development or public policy issues that, that's to be addressed. Uh, then we look towards providing spaces and op opportunities for collaboration. So I'll give you one example of an approach that where we can start, where we can bring together the different um, uh, development actors and data science uh, uh, geeks, I guess, uh, is uh, what we call research dives, Tom. Um, so this brings together data scientists, policymakers, practitioners, and academicians. And um, we put them together in a, in a room, accessing uh, uh, data sets around a particular, uh, and looking to answer a particular policy issue. And then uh, working collectively to uh, to try to find insights from the available data. So that's one of the ways that uh, we've, we've uh, implemented to be able to bridge uh, between uh, the two, Tom. Well, thank you. That does sound very exciting. I'd love to be part of that. Um, speaking as an evaluator, though, this is the, you know, kind of major focus of, of our work. Um, how do you see um, the ways in which uh, evaluators and data scientists can work together, um, mm. maybe diversifying their methods uh, and focusing on the big challenges of development collectively? So what is it that particularly you think you can do working with uh, evaluators that would help us do things that we couldn't otherwise manage? Uh, I, I think that both have, have immense value and the results of, of collaborative work is, is so much stronger, uh, Tom. So, you know, for evaluators, once you get over the provenance issues and uh, fully understand the value and characteristics of the data set that's being accessed, um, then there is a lot that evaluators can gain from utilizing big data uh, just due to the scale. And the fact that the data was not influenced to highlight achievements of the of a particular project or intervention that's under evaluation. So, in other words, the, the data uh, from big data is, is invaluably neutral. Again, uh, once we understand the nature of the data and its original intent. Um, but on the other hand, for data scientists also have, you know, and I think it's widely reported, you know, they, that they have their own tendencies and biases which can influence algorithms and um, the resulting insights that are produced. Uh, so in PulseLab Jakarta, we actually have what we call a social systems team. Um, and that's that was actually established exactly for the purpose of uh, ground truthing insights from big data analytics, uh, particularly to understand the human element and local context that are impacting on the data. Um, and again, this is why we've been uh, we have adopted what we call, uh, what, sorry, what is called the impact creation logic. This um, this uh, framework is actually developed by uh, a person by the name of Christian Silos and Johanna Mayer uh, in Stanford University. 
Um, and so the impact creation logic um, uh, is what, applying this is what we're looking for is where data innovations for development, which is basically working around in the solution space, um, actually needs to be combined needs to be combined with perspectives from the problem space and also from uh, an identity space. So we don't just develop a solution and then try to look for a problem and and a host to apply that that the data solution that we found. Um, so and and that I think is is important where too many uh, data innovation facilities work on a solution and then try to find how how that can be applied to a particular uh, problem and who can actually host uh, or adopt that particular data solution. Petra Mariana here. I guess that yes. what you're telling us is that uh, the key here is really to understand the nature of, of the yes. data by the evaluator. Um, but I have a question in terms of, I mean, you mentioned a number of things you were working on. I really liked uh, when you were talking about the complementarity between uh, traditional data and big data. And you also outline a few challenges uh, already, but I wanted us to go deeper there. For example, you mentioned the work with COVID-19, you mentioned the importance of building relationships and the shared value approach. Um, and then you talked about, um, with Elena, about um, how high, cost it can be um, big data, but also opportunities for lowering that cost or, or sharing that mm. cost with, with data owners. Um, and then you mentioned the, the, the importance of communication, communicating effectively, and also the importance of contextualizing the data uh, locally. But um, can you can you guide us through uh, other challenges that you've been facing when, when applying big data? Yes, um, and 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 thank you, uh, Mariana, because it's it's definitely not not straightforward. Yeah, there's there's so many uh, <laughs> challenges, um, and I, I think what's put a particular concern um, for us trying to use big data is uh, that there are those who are being left behind because they don't have a digital mm -hmm. footprint, which then would include them, of course, in big data sets. Um, so definitely big data cannot be relied on fully to represent conditions and trends. You know, it has to be further validated, uh, particularly through quantitative assessments and inputs from uh, domain experts. Um, also, you know, it's, it's not usually produced for development, right? And so more often than not, it has immense commercial value for the data owners. And a real challenge in um, accessing and using big data is ensuring that the competitive and commercial interests of data providers are properly considered. Uh, so as you said, um, uh, uh, as you highlighted that uh, it, identifying those shared value propositions is so important to convince everybody that involved that opening up access and undertaking those um, analytical processes for development is beneficial for all sides. Um, another aspect I think is uh, often you know, government officials and development agencies come from a uh, uh, a high moral standpoint, seemingly, and so it's it's like the approach is this assumption that they should be able to access the data for humanitarian purpose purposes, and um, often, you know, in trying to access this data uh, data and and uh, uh, many governments and and agencies don't actually have the necessary mechanisms and capacity to protect the data itself. And this 
creates risk for uh, data providers. So um, uh, being being where uh, uh, pertinent of on your on your own capacity to uh, protect and ensure the security of the data is also a challenge uh, to be able to, uh, in using big data for development. Um, then other risks, um, one, one that I, uh, I find is, is interesting is, you know, sometimes uh, there's money uh, available. Uh, maybe uh, there's an underspend or uh, some uh, uh, project that's been, uh, um, uh, that has been canceled. And so there's extra funding available. And then precedents are, are established where data is then purchased at, a, at full commercial value. And be, when there occurs these sort of precedents, it makes it difficult to progress relationships uh, which are not based on commercial interests if, if you know, when, when uh, data has already been per purchased uh, based mm -hmm. on a, a commercial agreement. So, uh, yeah, the, this, these, these are some of the challenges, Mariana. Some of them, I imagine <laughs> there is a, a full list <laughs> of challenges. But let me pick up a line of yours and, and help us sure. move from challenges to, to solutions. So you were talking about data providence and this idea that data, big data is not uh, developed with the intent of serving development and humanitarian actions. But um, but there, you mentioned a few um, solutions or um, a few ways to go about it, but can you tell us more about it? Can you tell us more about incentives and how do we build um, a, a better system where we are actually producing data that ultimately serves humanity. Oh, uh, it's, it's just the nature of big data itself, uh, where a lot of it is, is generated um, automatically, uh, uh, Mariana, based on digital uh, technologies. And so it's more having uh, the capacity to, and, I, and this is going to show my generation um, when I'm referring to a an old film series, I don't know if you know um, the MacGyver series? Probably not. I watched all of them. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I know all the know, tricks. <laughs> exactly, and it, it's, it's actually having, being able to approach it with an open mind uh, and creatively look at where the data can be used and can be applied, and, and again, also where it's not applicable. So it, there's a, the, um, I find it's amazing the the team that I, I have a privilege to be engaged with that their capacity to to look at, at new new approaches new ways of, of applying data which is not uh, never intended for this uh, for humanitarian or development purposes but it can, but um, um, can be applied uh, of course with uh, uh, various uh, parameters and 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 uh, 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 yeah, various parameters uh, to ensure that it's not over-interpreting or, or creating insights that are inaccurate. And again, uh, the value of having a, an evaluator team, basically a social systems team that, that can uh, then uh, ground truth those insights is, is, is just so important. I, I really love the uh, MacGyver series <laughs> very much. So I, I think it's a new way of looking at data. I'm going to hand over to Lauren for the final few questions, and then I'll come back to you again. Petra, thank you so much for this conversation so far. It's been very enlightening. Before we let you go, just a few more questions. Um, you talked a little bit before about government capacity being lacking for storing data, um, but a 
kind of more broad question is um, what is the UN Global Pulse's role in capacity development for evaluators, um, particularly in terms of effective use of emerging data tools? Oh, okay. Um, so for this, uh, Lauren, um, what we've been looking, this is where we, we look to apply this uh, impact creation logic where there's a problem space, a solution space, but also what we call the uh, what's called the identity space, basically being the capacity uh, that's uh, re required. So um, I, I, I'm speaking in more general terms, I guess, in terms of capacity of the re recipient or beneficiary organization to be able to adopt and and adapt uh, data innovation. So uh, for Pulse Lab Jakarta, we try to undertake capacity building as part and parcel of each initiative when working in collaboration with evaluators and planners. So um, it's very important to first build a joint understanding of the approach and the methodologies that are applied towards each of the algorithms that then result in data insights. And so I think it's 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 critical to always have a co-creation approach as, as actually being the first step towards uh, capacity building because the, the whole co-creation process actually uh, identifies and provides insights of what are the actual capacity development requirements that are that are needed to uh, and and that leads to effective use of emerging data tools yeah that's uh, very true thank you so much again for joining us in evaluate studio that was a excellent and a fruitful conversation another episode of exciting evaluate podcasts and we hope uh, you will continue tuning into us and we thank you so much for listening and look forward uh, to having you in more exciting evaluate and cutting edge podcasts thank you very much <laughs>